You are listening to A Cup of Tea with the DBE, brought to you by the Daughters of the British Empire. British Empire is a 501c3 non-profit American Society of Women of British or Commonwealth birth or ancestry, sharing and promoting our heritage while supporting local charities and our senior living facilities across the U.S. Good afternoon and welcome to August's episode number 28 of A Cup of Tea with the DBE. Today, I have for you the second part of my chat with journalist and Titanic enthusiast Marissa, the first part of which was episode 23 to mark the 110th anniversary of Titanic sinking. So if you haven't already listened to that, be sure to go back and do so. We'll be talking notable passengers, cargo, and how journalism laws were changed in the aftermath of the sinking. But first, I have one quick announcement for those of you in DBE's Midwest District. If you plan to attend the Midwest Organizers Meeting in October, you can now find information on Illinois' website, and you can also register online there. The website is dbeillinois.org, and you can find information about registration and the hotel in the shop. Again, that's dbeillinois.org. Now it's time to pour yourself a cup of tea and get comfortable. There are many people whose names we still know today that booked passage on the Titanic's maiden voyage. These include Marconi himself, 1909 Nobel Prize, 1909 Nobel Prize winner in physics and the inventor of the wireless telegraph, which was used to convey the tragic events that befell the Titanic. His invention was credited in saving over 700 lives that night. He was offered free passage on the Titanic, but as his daughter would later explain, he had paperwork to do and preferred the stenographer on board the Lusitania, which departed three days earlier. The Lusitania would itself sink three years after the Titanic when it was struck by a German U-boat in 1915. Despite having his own personal suite with a private promenade deck and specially designed bath with cigar holders, J.P. Morgan remained at a French resort instead of boarding the Titanic. Milton Hershey of chocolate fame was also supposed to be on board the Titanic, but business called and instead he set sail on the earlier German liner, the America, which became one of several ships that attempted to warn Titanic of the ice that lay ahead. Some who did board the ship and survive include two remarkable women who were in the same lifeboat as Margaret Brown, Elsie Bowerman, a British suffragette who went on to serve as a nurse during World War I and then became the first female barrister to practice at Old Bailey, and American author Helen Churchill Candy, who despite breaking her ankle whilst evacuating, was reported to have teamed up with Molly Brown to row the lifeboat. You know, it's kind of funny because at the time, you know, not a whole lot of people called her Molly. Um, I think that that was just kind of like a more easy name to roll off the tongue, you know, for cinema than Margaret or Maggie. But one really cool thing is her great granddaughter is very active in the Titanic community and she'll she's written books and she'll go to museums. And I haven't gotten the chance to meet her yet, but hopefully one day. 
Margaret Brown, you know, she was a firecracker for her time. You know, she was definitely new money, like said in the uh, movie. And she was there for a good time. And she had these very strong morals. And she very famously, you know, stood up to the crewmen in her lifeboat to say, you know what, we need to go and save these people. And unfortunately, though, she was a woman in 1912. And she was told to sit there and look pretty and just wait to be rescued, essentially. But she grabbed an oar and at least helped row um, when they saw the Carpathia and tried to keep everyone's spirits up. And I think that, you know, we could all learn a lot from that in and of itself. Don't be quiet and speak up and do what's right at the end of the day. I don't know how much you know about the DBE itself. We are a women's organization. A lot of our chapter namesakes are women who have been loud. Some have been executed for doing what they believe is right. DBE is all about women who shake things up a little bit, I think. I love that. I absolutely (laughs) love that. She had some very bold actions like in her lifeboat. She has a musical named after her today, the unsinkable Molly Brown. And just even like looking at her, she just embodies so much of what the times were. If she were to be alive today, I feel like she would be so proud of the progress that circling it back to like women's empowerment, like the progress that we've made, but to, you know, kind of bring it back to talking about, you know, famous women on board and brave women on board. And I could definitely spend a lot of time, you know, researching this next wonderful lady, but Violet Jessup was a nurse on board. And to talk about somebody who is so lucky to be alive, obviously not now, not today, but to have survived rather, she was on each of the three sister ships during their disasters. Oh, wow. So she was on the Olympic when it crashed with the HMS Hawk. She was on the Titanic during the sinking. And then a few years later, she was on the Britannic when the Britannic sank. Wow. (laughs) And she survived all three. But yeah, she was a nurse at the time and she was responsible for taking care of everybody, even during the aftermath, Um, you know, on board the Carpathia. She was doing her best to take care of everybody around her. One thing that I will always find very interesting is that during the inquiries afterward, So most of the survivors were women and we are in a 1912 landscape where they're going to want to listen to the testimony of Bruce Ismay before they listen to the testimony of, you know, Maggie Brown. So a lot of what the women were testifying and saying were not taken very seriously. Very famously, a woman passenger, you know, said that the ship broke in half that night. But owners of White Starline were insulted by that. Why would this amazing ship that's so sturdy and so strong and it was supposed to be so safe, it would have never broken apart. So a lot of the men said that, no, that ship sank intact. And then, you know, obviously come 1985, famous oceanographer Robert Ballad discovers the sinking of the ship and discovers it in half. So then it's like, oh, maybe we should have listened to some of the women. Maybe they did know what they were talking about there. Again, luckily it did because that probably gave more people time to escape. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You're 100% right there. You know, a lot of the women just weren't listened to. And it's awful because now we essentially have to go back and relook at history 
And to think of all the stories now that aren't going to be told because of that is kind of sad for me anyway, because that's what I love Mm -hmm. so much about it are all the different stories and humanizing these events. In 2012, I was in college, um, you know, going to school for journalism, and I got to write an article about, you know, essentially Titanic 100 years later, and I went to school at Youngstown State University, so I did the story essentially about like Youngstown's ties to the Titanic, and I got to talk to the great-grandson of someone who was on board the ship. Um, Her name was Shanini George. Thinking back, it's like I'm very lucky that I got to talk to her great grandson, whose name is Shane George, because he had all of her stories and her testimonies, and he's able to pass those stories down. Mm -hmm. But she was in the same lifeboat as John Jacob Astor, and he was the first person to get talked to um, in the aftermath. And obviously, he's a very important man in all of this, the chairman of the White Star Line. And he's like a villain, a hero, a coward and all that. But regardless, important man in all of this. um, But he got talked to immediately. But Shanini never got got spoken to or her account of everything that happened didn't get talked about. And I only know about her story because of her grandson, which I'm thankful for because she really talked about like the aftermath of the Titanic and how badly it affected her. And she lived in Youngstown afterwards near a school and she couldn't go to like school football games because of the cheering and it kind of gave her PTSD of folks that screaming in the water like it's you know so sad to think about but thankfully you know her relative is passing her story down because no one really cared to know what it was at the time anyone else that was on board that you want to talk about my favorite person to talk about is Thomas Andrews. So for me, he's like essentially the godfather of the Titanic. He was the head architect. And for me, just like thinking back to like, you know, his life and how sad his ultimate demise was like, he loved architecture and ships so much. You know, he was an apprentice Um, for a shipyard company, you know, him working for the White Star Line and getting to take notes on, you know, how he he can improve, you know, the ships and all that good stuff. Like, I'm obsessed with blueprints of the Titanic because it's like, so it ties to him so closely. It's just so interesting. And I will say, in my humble opinion, the movie did him a lot of justice because, He was very famously staring, you know, at the clock in the, you know, first class dining saloon and he went down with the ship and it's very sad to think about, but, you know, just to see his passion and he lived his passion right up until the very end. Um, And he's one of the ones that, yeah, he's like one of the more famous like Titanic personalities, but um, folks don't really talk about him too, too, too much. A lot of folks are more interested in essentially, you know, the villainizing of, you know, Bruce Ismay and his story. And, you know, everyone wants to know about the captain and, you Mm -hmm. know, people are interested in the captain and his life. So between, you know, the two, you know, Thomas Andrews kind of gets like lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, But his life was very interesting up until the very end. Like he was, in my humble opinion, a hero of the night. You know, he was making sure people were getting into life vests and guiding people to where they needed to go. And he was knocking down doors and getting people out of their rooms. And I'm sure he saved a lot of lives that night. 
Speaking of the captain, do you want to talk a little bit about him as well? Captain Smith. The saddest part, I think, of his story and how his story ended um, was this was going to be his last voyage. And he was going to be, yeah, he was going to be retiring afterward. And, you know, that's very sad to think about that, you know, this was going to be his last big bang. And he actually wasn't even going to take the job, but he was convinced like, oh my gosh, like how awesome would it be that your last voyage is on the Titanic, the most Mm -hmm. luxurious ship, the most like technologically advanced safe ship out there. Like that would be amazing. So he kind of got convinced to um, take that role. His life was all about, you know, the sea and ships and um, very similar to that of Thomas Andrews. You know, he was an apprentice at a very young age and he worked his way up from being a sixth officer to being a captain. And, you know, he just he lived and breathed this. And um, and this is one inquiry that, you know, a lot of, you know, enthusiasts and historians discuss is like, you know, was he ultimately at fault for, you know, how fast the ship was moving at the time it struck the iceberg? You know, a lot of folks kind of stand by, you know what, he would not have risked his reputation. But at the end of the day, no one on the ship has, you know, more authority than the captain. So I'm sure he felt a lot of guilt in those final moments. And um, anytime I go to any Titanic museum, they usually have some type of recreation of the captain's room with like the steering wheel and mm-hmm. um it's always a solemn moment because it's like, oh my gosh, like in that moment, he's just, you know, probably thinking of his family who he's leaving behind. He left behind a wife and a daughter and, and it's so sad to think about, but that's the humanizing part of it is, you know, he unfortunately didn't survive. Um, We don't know exactly what happened to him. I like to think that he went to, you know, the captain's wheelhouse and those were his final moments. Um, Some say that, you know, they saw him jump overboard. Others say, you know, he was trying to save a baby who fell overboard, but we don't know for sure. His body was never recovered. So we will unfortunately never know. Isidore Strauss very famously you know, refused the place on the lifeboats until all the women and children were given a spot. And his wife stayed behind with him, Ida Strauss. She very famously said, wherever you go, I go. You know, she wasn't going to leave her husband. And she was, you know, happy to live her final moments with her husband, knowing that they had raised their kids and they had a good life together. And as sad and scary as that moment would be, you know, they left the world together. and. Neither one of them had to be scared or frightened because of it. Aww. Marissa mentioned Isidore Strauss, the then co-owner of Macy's, and his wife, Ida. I wanted to add that Isidore's body was recovered, but Ida's never was, and there is now a memorial to the both of them in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, where the cenotaph features a line from the Song of Solomon. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. And another victim I want to add, Benjamin Guggenheim, who was reported to put a rose in his buttonhole and said, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. He also gave someone a message to pass on to his estranged wife. Quote, tell her I played the game out straight to the end. No woman shall be left aboard this ship because Ben Guggenheim is a coward. End quote. His body was also never recovered. Eight musicians were also on board and led by violinist Wallace Hartley. 
They reportedly played uplifting music through the night in an effort to help passengers remain calm as they evacuated. They stayed together until the very end, with one passenger stating, quote, Many brave things were done that night, but none were more brave than those done by men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower into the sea, end quote. Now, some of you may know that the RMS designation means Royal Mail Steamship and refers to the fact that the Titanic was in fact carrying mail, 3,364 bags of mail to be exact, as well as seven or 800 parcels and a huge cargo, which included 800 pounds of tea, 2,200 pounds of coffee, 1,500 bottles of wine, 20,000 bottles of beer, and four cases of opium. However, the most valuable cargo, feathers. At the time, only diamonds were more at the time only diamonds were worth more by weight and feathers were in high demand because of the hat trends. Everyone wanted huge fluffy feathers on their hats and ostrich feathers were the perfect choice. The feathers being transported on the Titanic were insured for today's equivalent of 2.3 million dollars. There were no large quantities of gold, minerals, or diamonds, as some legends may suggest, but there were a few unique cultural items that were lost. A neoclassical oil painting, La Circassienne Alban, painted in 1814 by Mary Joseph Blondel, went down with the ship, and its owner filed the largest claim against the White Star Line for loss of a single item at the equivalent of around $2.5 million today. Also lost was a jeweled copy of the Rubaiyat. This particular edition took two years to bind, being inlaid with 1,500 precious stones, each with their own gold setting. It had recently sold at auction and was being shipped to its new owner in America via the Titanic, and its value is around $45,000 today. Several other rare books were also on board in possession of 1907 Harvard graduate and rare book collector Harry Elkins Widener. His collection included a first edition publication of essays by Francis Bacon. Harry ensured his mother and her maid made it onto a lifeboat and he was lost to the ocean with his books. His was another body never to be recovered, but his mother endowed the Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library at Harvard University which is still world famous for its own rare book collection. Finally, while Marissa is a Titanic enthusiast, I happen to be an enthusiast of cursed mummies, and while the curse of King Tut is the most well-known legend, here's another. Legend says that the British Museum had sold the mummy of Princess Amun-Ra after a series of deaths had surrounded it. Its new home was with an American archaeologist, and it was being sent there, of course, on board the Titanic, which was taken to the bottom of the ocean in a final act of revenge by the mummy's curse. In actuality, the unlucky mummy, as it's known, isn't even a mummy, rather the lid of an inner coffin that once covered a mummy, which hasn't left the British Museum since it got there in 1889. The story started when sensationalist journalist William Thomas Stead relates tales of the curse during an 11-course dinner party on board the Titanic, April 12th, which Frederick Seward also attended. Though Stead became one of the lives lost, Seward survived and was interviewed for an article 
by the New York world. Fittingly, Stead's stories of curses and mummies were sensationalized over time and have become legends. And speaking of false journalism... Oh my goodness. The series of events that happened after the Titanic, you know, is really what makes this like such a prominent moment in history because of everything it changed afterwards. And one of those things that changed was, you know, how we approach journalism and reporting. And a lot of early reports stated that there were no lives lost. So can you imagine like, you know, you know, you have family that was going to be coming over on the Titanic and you hear that it struck an iceberg and you immediately have that fear in your heart. But then you have that moment of relief when the Daily Mail reports no lives lost. It's like, okay, like they're okay, you know, just get them home. And then being in New York at that time, waiting for them to come home and then they never come home. That's just devastating to me. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why that happened is because of the way that news was spread from person to person at the time. So everything was essentially being done by telegraph messages. And to be quite honest, the Marconi operators on the Carpathia weren't necessarily worried about like, okay, like let's send this to the New York Times and the Halifax Times and the Daily Mail. Like they were more worried about like these passengers want to tell their families that they're safe. Mm -hmm. So let's do that. A lot of these reports came out the early morning of April 15th, 1912, you know, hours after the events took place, um, just because they wanted to be the first to report anything, right? However, even the White Star Line didn't get the for sure information that the Titanic had sank until, you know, that evening. Mr. Ismay would eventually send a telegraph to White Star Line offices, you know, saying, I regret to inform you that the Titanic has struck an iceberg and sunk heavy loss of life. Um, The New York Times, this event actually sort of put them on the map of being one of the more accurate news sources at the time. Although, you know, everyone wants to be the first to report it, right? They were more worried about reporting it accurately and actually looking at the timeline of events that happened. The New York Times took very good care with the story from all sources here. They were actually, as they were getting the names of survivors, they had essentially a huge chalkboard outside of their office is where they were updating it and putting the names on there oh, wow. so that the yeah so the families could see and kind of just you know hope that you know their loved ones names would would appear on it the way that the word of mouth was spread it's you know kind of sad cuz even some you know news sources didn't even know the ship had sank. They just reported that an iceberg was struck, but hey, the Titanic's okay. We're going to see it in a few days, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of newspapers kind of like, you know, were pretty embarrassed in the aftermath of that. Like I said, because how angry would you be, you know, to have that wave of relief to then later find yeah. out that they had inaccurate reporting there? And did you say that uh, journalism laws changed a little bit because of this as well? Yeah, in a big way, um, some journalism law did change due to this. Essentially, what we now have to like with any kind of like um, historical event, we have to have more than one source before we can report it. You know, the events of 9-11, even today, the events of the Ukraine, it's like, okay, we need to have more than one news source to actually say that this is something that happened.
That's it for today. A big thank you again to Marissa for joining me and sharing her passion and excitement with us. As always, please send us your news, topic suggestions, questions, comments, or feedback. Podcast at dbenational.org is our email address, and I love hearing from you. You can also contact me if you have your own story or something you're passionate about and want to be on the show. Members in the Midwest District, don't forget to register for the Midwest Organizers Meeting this October, hosted by Illinois. Visit dbeillinois.org for details. We'll have another new episode at the beginning of September. So until then, not ourselves, but the cause. Thank you.